Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am indeed Elaine miller Karras, your host, and I would like to, do, to welcome my guest and friend, Sarah Cook, who will share her extensive experience working with people affected by conflict internationally and in Northern Ireland. Now, I happen to know that Sarah was uh, first uh, quite a visitor of the States. In fact, I believe you were, uh, were you born here, Sarah, in the the U.S.? Yes, I was born in California and I lived in the U.S. until I was about 23. Okay. And And then I believe that you met a wonderful Northern Ireland gentleman, but I think you were, um, in Northern Ireland before you met even him, but now that's where you live. And so I know we'll talk a little bit more about that, but she is a United Kingdom representative to women's mediators across the Commonwealth. And those working in the fields of peace building and humanitarian aid are known for providing desperately needed support to people affected by conflict, war, natural disasters, and inequality of the world. I have to say, Sarah is a person of great compassion and empathy. And she works very closely with many individuals in the world to help them during the hardest of times. And so she shared with me that there are a few structures and services in place to support the psychosocial needs of peace building and humanitarian practitioners. So Sarah is going to share how she provides support to peacekeepers. We're also going to explore a little bit about how the community resiliency model, as you know, I'm one of the developers of that model, is being used to support peace building and humanitarian Um, practitioners, as well as conflict-affected populations internationally. But I want to tell you a few things more about her. Sarah and I both share something. We're both social workers. Her peace-building work includes dialogue, mediation, and storytelling encounters between between conflict-affected populations, including victims and survivors of violence, security forces, and paramilitaries. Much of her work addresses the psychosocial impact of conflict, including the impact of mediation and peace building work on practitioners. Sarah is particularly focused on supporting the participation of women, peace builders, and mediators through women, peace, and security agenda. For 20 years, Sarah has designed and implemented methodologies to address conflict-related impact and providing and provides training and facilitation. Sarah teaches, of course, I've already mentioned the community resiliency model, and she's one of the leaders of our community resiliency model teachers in, in, in Ireland and the UK. Um, she's trained people from over 30 countries, including humanitarian aid workers supporting the resettlement of Syrian refugees in both Turkey and Lebanon. And she lives in, in Belfast with her lovely husband, Mark, and your two wonderful children that I got to meet when I was there in, in Belfast. Right. So welcome, Sarah. What's on Thanks, your mind Elaine. as we're getting started today? Well, I I think maybe because we're talking about the community resiliency model and how I'm using it in different parts of my work, I'm really thinking today about some training that we just finished a couple of days ago for three different groups in the Ukraine. Um, And it was just um, such a powerful experience. I was able to collaborate with quite a few of the teachers here in Northern Ireland and Ireland. 
And we were able to come together to really support um, some uh, health workers, some community health workers and social workers um, on the ground in Ukraine and various parts of the country, just with some community resiliency model skills and concepts. And it was such a powerful experience. Um, One of the the, uh, participants, after experiencing um, some resourcing and, and some of the other skills, kind of came out of the group. And when we were asking for feedback, he said, I feel alive and ready to act. And I just thought, oh, so powerful. Um, it's such a, a beautiful thing to be a part of this kind of, I suppose, a global community of people who are, you know, really supporting each other during difficult times like like the war in Ukraine. So it was really, really a beautiful thing to be a part of this week. Well, Sarah, I know that you've been trained in many different models of helping people during conflict. Um, and so what makes a, you think the community resiliency model a little bit different? I know that you became a a teacher a few years ago, but you've also seemed to embraced it. And I'm just kind of curious about what is it that's different about this compared to other models that you've trained people in? That's a great question, Elaine. I think it's really the somatic or kind of embodied aspect of the community resiliency model that's so different. Um, When I was uh, living in the States in the U.S., I had graduated from college and I was, my first job was the executive director of a maternity home, so a residential facility for young mothers. And it was in a very, very poor part of the U.S. and the young women who came to stay would uh, range between the ages of 13 and 21 and they could come and have their babies and get support. Um, And then, you know, get some support with parenting and, and sort of be ready to, to go on their way after. But what was really, um, what struck me is the young women experienced a lot of trauma. So a lot of them were coming with pretty significant impacts in their lives outside of um, being unexpectedly pregnant at a young age. And then I moved very shortly after to Northern Ireland in 2001. And I noticed uh, when I started to work with people here who'd been affected by the conflict, whether they were um, uh, you know, uh, part of security forces or part of ex-combatants or paramilitary um, organizations or whether they were people who were injured or bereaved, that a lot of the signs of, of trauma and stress in the body were almost exactly the same as these young women thousands of miles away in rural Indiana. And I kept thinking, you know, a lot of the people we were working with here in Northern Ireland had been doing really courageous peace building work. They'd been meeting with perceived enemies. They'd been really challenging themselves and some of them were getting good therapeutic support. So they were figuring things out in their heads, figuring things out in their hearts, but their bodies were still carrying significant signs of trauma and stress. And I kept thinking, as a social worker, surely there has to be something we can get into the hands of people who already have the strength and the courage um, to support themselves and each other through conflict, but how can we provide some extra tools that'll help them with maybe that final part of the journey in a sense of healing. So when the community resiliency model came down the pipeline um, through our very good friend, Leslie Carroll, when she called and said, you know, I think I have something that you've been talking about for a long time that I think is going to fit the bill. um, I jumped on board and it really has been. It's so, I suppose the model is so um, simple to learn and to teach. It's so straightforward and, um, you know, so kind of organic for a lot of people. It just feels very natural. Um, and because it's about the body, I think those two pieces, the, um, the ease of learning and teaching, and then the fact that it's speaking this different language of the body that most people haven't been familiar with in the past, 
um, has just made it really particularly effective in Northern Ireland and with other places in the world that have experienced conflict. So just so um, people who may not know about the model, um, the community resiliency model, one of the centerpieces of the model is learning how to read your autonomic nervous system. So how to tell the difference essentially when you're in distress and when you are experiencing well-being. We have some very, very simple skills, as simple as like uh, identifying things that give you joy, um, uplift you, that bring you calm in the world. And when you start thinking about those things and really thinking about the details around and surrounding them, it causes something to happen on the inside where you sometimes take a deeper breath, you can feel your muscles relax, and you have kind of the state of well-being. It's like the gentleman you described. And not only are you sensing this in your body, it has this amazing effect on what's called our prefrontal cortex. And often, and you know, that human beings are meaning makers and all of a sudden start spilling out of people. I call it the cream rising to the top. People start feeling like that revitalization that you talked about and also feeling sometimes this great deal, um, deal of um, amount of compassion, I guess what, else, what I'm going to say for themselves and for others. And for him being in Ukraine, it's like a call of action to start doing even more work within the country that's suffering right now. So you just so you just completed this training in Ukraine. So can I ask you a little bit about that, Sarah? Would that be all right? So, um, you know, in terms of being, you know, responding with, with Krim or with any kind of modality during war. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you went to Northern Ireland, it was after the conflicts that had happened, and of course, there is as as we well know about Northern Ireland and any place where there's that kind of conflict, there is a residue, there is an aftermath, a wake that does not go away easily. Mm-hmm. So how do you see it differently responding during war versus after a conflict? It's really interesting. When I was working with the different groups this week in Ukraine, people would say very quickly, if I sort of tried to pull the, the language of the kind of the teaching back to sort of everyday stress or work-related stress, they would stop and put their hand up and say, we feel like we can handle that kind of stress. We want you to talk about the war. So there was that real immediacy, you know, when someone, when a bomb drops in front of you coming out of the grocery store, as one woman said, and you freeze and everyone around you freezes, what do you do with that freeze response? Or if you're in a bomb shelter and children are distressed or adults around you are distressed and you feel a little helpless, how can you have some perspectives, how can you have some tools where you can support them very practically? So people were really wanting that immediacy um, of uh, support, I suppose, and insight into very practical tools to help. And a lot of the people that we were working with were really in the east of the country in areas that are under heavy bombardment. And interestingly enough, um, Wednesday, this past Wednesday, the 24th, was uh, Ukrainian Independence Day. And so there was a real uptick or fear of uptick in shelling and bombing. And so there was a, a pretty significant level of anxiety in the um, in the training group. But what was amazing, and I've seen this in other areas, that my experience is the more heavily affected the population is that we're working with who's, who's experienced war or other types of adversity or trauma, the quicker they feel in their nervous system that shift and that change. So people really understand the community resiliency model and, and the skills associated with it so quickly because they can feel that difference, getting that little relief from the effect of trauma in the body, or as you say, sometimes Elaine, that little um, that little break from the storms of the body, the storms, what can feel like the storms, the nervous system can really um, give people um, a, a chance to breathe a little bit better, think a little more clearly, feel a little bit of rest in their body. So I think that's probably the difference in those immediate 
um, the, the work with immediately affected people um, who are right in the middle of war. But interestingly, this spring, I did some work with Afghan women leaders who had fled Afghanistan, Af- Afghanistan after the, uh, the takeover of the Taliban. And they had all fled because they were all pretty significant leaders in the country. They were politicians, they were police women, they were judges, they were university professors or lecturers. And so they were really under threat. And for them, it was very similar. So they were, you know, kind of six months, eight months out of that experience, but really still um, carrying a lot of that, that impact in the body. And interestingly, I was working with them when the war in Ukraine started, and many of them said, I'm getting those same impacts as when the Taliban took over. I'm having nightmares. I'm having flashbacks. I can't focus because they were saying it's really brought up to us watching things unfold so quickly in Ukraine. It's really brought up to us. Um, our, our same experiences that you know, really come to mind and we've experienced it or re-experienced it in the body. So I think, again, as a social worker, as a practitioner, um, one of the things that's really joyful for me is to be able to share things that bring people that little bit of relief when they've experienced something that probably no human should ever have to experience. Well, and I, I also want to kind of point out to our listeners is that you're talking about working women with women in Af- who come from Afghanistan. You're talking about also working um, with people who are in Ukraine, who are Ukrainians. And you've also talked about working in Northern Ireland with, with the, uh, with the Irish with, and so you're all, you're talking about people that have grown up in very different um, communities and different cultures. And yet we always say this, don't we, Sarah, we all have a nervous system and that when we learn how to read our nervous system and find out that we can bring attention to that, those sensations of well-being, even during the worst of times, it really can change us. I mean, I think that's why, you know, it's it's kind of powerful. I guess that we kind of feel passionate about it because we see the impacts of it so quickly. Yeah. So, Sarah, I have another question for you, because here you are doing all this work long before I met you. You've been working as um um, working with conflict resolution. And here you were a young woman from the US who ended up in this work and living over in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and what was it about um, your life or what you saw in the world that made you so passionate about the work that you do? So I came to Northern Ireland in 1997 and I was a social work and history double major and on a very practical note, the only the only way I could study abroad was to study somewhere socio-political. So I knew very little about the context of Northern Ireland. I learned very quickly, of course, in preparation. But I came with, you know, very, very fresh eyes um, to the experience of studying here. So I was here for a semester, and I lived with a woman um, in a in a very loyalist or, or Protestant housing estate in a divided city, and I my education and my socializing was on the other side of the city. So it was quite a powerful time to be in Northern Ireland as people were negotiating the Good Friday Agreement. And so I had a, a really interesting study abroad experience that returned to the States thinking that was it. And I had the opportunity to come back and volunteer a couple of years later. And I thought this is just a year, really want to give back to Northern Ireland because um, it had been such a, a, an impacting experience for me to be here for that short time. And I was actually invited in at the end of my year of voluntary work, invited in to um, I suppose be an insider outsider, uh, to be a third space within the peace process. And I think there are so many interesting examples of that all over the world. You could do a fascinating uh, PhD thesis on that, of the, the different people who have been 
um, very much outsiders, but very knowledgeable about um, about a conflict context, really passionate about supporting people, and who've been able to kind of not be from any of the perspectives involved in the conflict, but really to hold that kind of third space or different space in the, in the middle. Um, and I think, you know, I came from a family of social workers and pastors and teachers. And so we've all been very involved in change making. And I think for me, that invitation into peace building in Northern Ireland and to kind of using, I suppose, my, my compassion and my, and my passion for, for the context here. Um, and to be someone who could create that safe space for people. Um, really pulled me in. It was it was a, a really deep privilege for me to do that, and that people trusted me with their stories. So, you know, when people came together as part of this project we organized, it was one of the first projects that brought British soldiers, former British soldiers, back to Northern Ireland. So a lot of um, soldiers desperately wanted to come. You know, some of them had post traumatic stress disorder, but really wanted to reach out, wanted to connect with um, members of the community here, and the fact that we could gather former soldiers and police, Catholic paramilitaries, Protestant paramilitaries, and people who were either injured or bereaved by state violence or paramilitary violence. It was really powerful. And a lot of times people would say to me, oh, you must see and hear some pretty terrible things. But it really was the opposite for me. I feel like I saw the best of humanity in those spaces where people were willing to trust each other with their stories um, when they were actually perceived enemies. And so it was a, a really formative time in my life. And I think that has maybe kept me on this um, path of really wanting to support peace processes and processes of change all around the world. Well, so, and as as horrible as war is, and certainly the conflict in Northern Ireland, um, it was, you know, it was such a, a small <laughs> geographical space. And so many people were affected in just such a major way. And I know that when I was in Northern Ireland, it was, you know, neighbor against neighbor. It could have been someone mm -hmm. who lived next to you for all these years, but if you were of a different faith, then everything shifted. And I, you know, that degree of fear that people, um, you know, experience that's been shared with me. And yet there are always individuals that said, oh, how could it be different? And how could we come together so that this doesn't have to repeat itself? Because this is not the first time there's been conflict in Northern Ireland in terms of looking at it historically. And I think that's the important thing for all of us working in the field of trauma is many of us feel that some of the conflicts that happen come from undigested trauma. And if we can help people get back into their zone of well-being, if we can help people learn to find their best selves so they can walk in their life in the present moment in a different way, then how might it change the world? I don't know. How might it change the world, Sarah? What do you believe about what I just said? We've never really talked about it, you and I together. Yeah, I, it's such an interesting question, you know, provocative in the best kind of sense, but beginning to imagine what that could look like if people could regulate their nervous system, if they could bring themselves back into balance. Um, I have done, you know, a, a fair amount of work with mediators and peace builders around the world. And one of the things that I love using the community resiliency model to do is to help people understand what's happening in their own bodies and then the people who might be around the negotiating table or who might be part of a peace building dialogue, what's happening in theirs and to really recognize that there's this dynamic at play and that if mediators and peace builders and if people, sometimes we call them parties in mediation, but if people who are participating in these um, processes of resolution can understand a little bit more about when their trauma can show up unexpectedly or when they can, you know, kind of have unexpected reactions in the body. And then if they could know how to manage that, 
how to support themselves, how to support each other. Um, in processes like that, I feel like not as many roadblocks get thrown up. You know, so people often act out of their trauma when they're in a really difficult peace building uh, mediation or negotiation process. And actually, if people can recognize, oh, I think I'm getting activated. What can I do to support myself here? Or if I see someone else around the table getting activated, is there something I can do to support them? I think our outcomes are better. I think people, um, because people's brains are fully functioning without getting into the brain science of it all, you know, when people's bodies and nervous systems feel calm or calmer, their, their thinking is clearer. And so people are able to come up with better solutions to connect to each other instead of pushing each other away um, when they can, you know, know how to work with their nervous system and work with their body. So I'm really excited about bringing the community resiliency model into the peace building context because I think it, it opens up all kinds of new spaces and also takes care of people differently. So I'll share a very quick story with you. I was working with women peace builders in Cyprus in March, and I was actually in Cyprus, which was a joy because I've been doing a lot of my work online for the last two years. And the women there haven't had the same access of sharing their stories of the conflict as some people have in different parts of the world. Culturally, it's not as much done there. And so, you know, I gave a very contained direction about how to introduce yourself and everybody just went blah and just, shared these very deep, very impacting experiences. One of the women was friends with another uh, coordinator of this event, this um, uh, workshop. And the, the woman, women had known each other for 25 years. And what the woman shared when she introduced herself had never been shared with her very good friend. So there was a lot of emotion and there was a lot of intensity. It was very healing. But women were were pretty, you know, you could tell there was a lot of unrest in their body. And so even though... The, the workshop wasn't about the community resiliency model. I was able to say to the women, think of something that makes you feel really strong and notice what's happening in your body as you do this. You know, you're amazing women. You've done amazing work. Let's just think for a minute about something that really, as you think of it, helps you to feel strong inside. And it was incredible to see how the air went out of the room in a good way. Everybody was breathing again. And they were able to really take that beautiful moment of sharing and also feel calm in their bodies and then move on from there. So I think there's something really, um, there's a real added value to, to bringing this kind of biological perspective into people. So I think that, you know, one of the things I've learned that we do have talked about, Sarah, is that, you know, when we talk about like conflict, well, then we say, well, what do you think about something? And what do you feel about them? Those are two components of the human experience. But we don't often say, well, what are you sensing about that, right? What are you sensing on the inside of your body? Go, oh, my heart's beating fast. Well, it's not usually part of the dialogue. And so mm -hmm. we're saying, why not be part of the dialogue? Because if we can recognize when our sympathetic nervous system is charged, that actually sometimes we are in such a state that we're even feeling heat in our body and we might have heat in our words that sometimes aren't the best for coming together to um, create dialogue. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. Sometimes that doesn't cause, you know, any dialogue at all. And, you know, think our listeners, if you think about a time when you had a conversation with a family member and you got really heated, we even say the word, I got really heated because that's what happens with the sympathetic nervous system. It sometimes doesn't end up being a good conversation. So then how can we cool down? And, and so cooling down might be a construct that we're thinking with our, our, our cortex, but really we have to sense it with our body. Well, cooling down might be exactly what you said. Oh, well, what uplifts me? What makes me feel strong? What, what are those things that make a difference for me? And that could make a huge difference in such a simple thing, right? In, in dialogue. Yeah. But you know, you've chosen to work with, with um, 
peace builders and humanitarian practitioners. You shared a little bit about how that space that you were invited to come in made a, a difference for you. Is there more that you want to say about what it's like to work? I'm thinking, gosh, people who decide to do this, they sometimes go into places when things are still really raw and it's not necessarily safe spaces. Mm-hmm. So what what would you like to say about that um, in terms of your work with peace builders and humanitarian practitioners? I have a little deep respect for peace builders and humanitarian workers, partly, I suppose, because I understand some of the pressures that, that people face um, in the field in particular. As you say, it can be very dangerous. You're often moving from place to place and territory that's not safe. Um, and you're listening and you're witnessing very difficult things often, but you're also listening to, to really tough stories, you know, stories of suffering, stories of trauma. And your job is to um, create space where people feel comfortable sometimes, you know, having those exchanges, saying what they need to say. Um, and you're, you're holding hope. That's often how I describe the work of peace builders and mediators is you're holding space, but you're also holding hope. You're, you're helping to really um, support that kind of, space where people know there's something that could change here. There's, you know, there's hope that something can be different. So all of that takes a lot of energy. Um, And in addition, for women in different parts of the world, a lot of my colleagues from women mediators across the Commonwealth may live in societies where men feel like if a woman is in that role, they're taking a man's role, or they may face a lot of criticism, a lot of pressure not to do the work that they do, um, a lot of marginalization because they're women. So all of that, you know, takes a a tremendous amount of energy and often a personal toll. Um, So some colleagues and I, have done some research recently on the psychosocial impact of peace building and mediation work on practitioners. And the outcomes were pretty significant in that, you know, people were really highly, highly impacted. Um, for example, 96% of the people who participated in the study reported that their emotional well-being is moderately to very impacted by their work. And yet the research also showed that the work is so excellent. So their personal mm-hmm. impact is deep. The work the work isn't impacted. So these women are often giving virtually everything to the work and really experiencing um, a lot of that impact in themselves, physically, emotionally, sometimes spiritually. And so um, I think that's why I have such a heart for um, women and, and men who are practicing in some of these really important helping professions in the world that they have support that they need because often the structures and even the culture of humanitarian work or peace building is that you give everything, you sacrifice everything. And so I think it's really important that some of us come alongside of, of practitioners, other practitioners and say, here are some things that can support you in, in the work you're doing. Well, I think it's that we call that vicarious trauma that you yeah. start picking up what, you know, the people that you're helping, you start experiencing something very similarly. And yet there's something that happens. happens. And I, I love the way you say that you hold the hope, right? Is that there's a, a bigger purpose and that larger purpose, that humanitarian purpose is becomes bigger than the individual. So it prompts people to keep doing the work, even to their own detriment. I have to say, I've probably felt that a little bit myself at times, right? Because you get so impassioned by the work that you know that can really shift people's life experience really in a very mm-hmm. profound way. And I can't imagine mm-hmm. that probably touches you a bit that way too, Sarah, at times, right? It's yeah. good to have skills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, we're going to take a little bit of a break right now um, for our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute that we both know and love, um, who sponsors our show. And when we come back, I want our listeners to know we are going to talk much more with Sarah Cook about her work and her perceptions about how do we help the helpers and how that's connected 
to building peace in the world. And I want to talk more about that because it, it is, does seem to be all very interconnected as you start sharing this with us. So we will be back in, in just a few minutes and we will continue our, our wonderful discussion with my dear friend, Sarah Cook. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Sarah Cook, who's talking about her work with peace builders and humanitarian workers around the world. 
Sarah is also a community resiliency model teacher, but I want to make sure that we have her website very clearly expressed on the show so that if you want to get in touch with Sarah afterwards, Sarah, can you share your website with, with our, our uh, listeners? Sure. So it's www.cook-consultancy.com. Well, that's pretty easy to remember. Okay. Yeah. So I kept it very simple. Well, one of my questions was here, you're doing this wonderful work with people around the world. How do people find out about you? Well, it's really interesting. It, it's really word of mouth. Um, it's a, I was very lucky. I've never, just my first website. I just popped it up today. Um, I really haven't had to talk much about my work over the years, which is wonderful. Um, I'd be a bit shy about talking about my own work. I think it comes from my family of origin. We've all kind of just been good, good workers and change makers without saying much about what we do. And so when I was invited into the peace building work that I did initially in Northern Ireland, it was very much an invitation. And each step along the way, people would say, could you help us with this? Or we'd love for you to do this. Um, and then eventually my kids got a, a little bit older and I tried to do part-time peace building work and discovered that's impossible, um, that you can't ever really quite uh, do it justice. And so I started working for myself and I've been working just as a, as a freelancer, a consultant for the last few years. Um, and so it's been, it's been lovely because I've been able to support uh, groups or organizations or certain processes, and then people have found me through there. So people have just sort of spread by word of mouth um, what I do and how I support people. So that's been lovely not to have to say too much about it, just to be able to focus on the work. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very grateful that you came to our first training in Belfast and became a crim teacher. So I'm wondering if maybe you could share a little bit with us what kinds of psychosocial impacts um, do you see in the mediators, the peace builders and humanitarian workers? We talked about vicarious trauma, but I imagine there's more. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great question, Elaine. We, we've we seen some really interesting um, results from the, the research we did, and I'm just going to have a little quick um, look at the statistics. So um, we noticed that people felt uh, emotionally drained. 79% of the women we, we interviewed felt emotionally drained. 79% experienced fatigue and exhaustion because of their work. 68% were worried about their personal safety. 68% experienced poor sleep. And 64% experienced an impact on their family. And for some of the women, that was pretty severe. One of the women who we interviewed as part of our research um, is a peace builder in a particular region of Africa, and an armed group um, kidnapped her her husband um, and held him for ransom. And she was able to ransom him and negotiate with the group for his release, and he was okay. But the, the stress and strain of that meant that as he was recovering, she was the primary breadwinner. She was looking after him. She was raising the children and she was under threat herself with a lot of the work that she'd done. So you can imagine, you know, for a lot of people working in the, and living in conflict areas, you know, that that personal impact is really, really deep. And often I think people don't recognize it because it's just a daily part of their lives and they love what they do. Um, and I think for women, especially, they often fought so hard to have a place at the table that they don't want to draw attention to themselves or look weak. They want to, you know, really be known be, for the professional strength, people they strength. are. Well, you know, yeah. you know that, yeah. you know, I think maybe I should back up a little bit because maybe people don't know what does it mean to be a peace builder? What do peace builders do in the world that could even put them in such danger where their husband could be kid, kidnapped when they're trying to resolve conflicts? Could you share a little bit about what, what a definition would be? 
Well, that's such an interesting question because there's still so much debate amongst peace builders ourselves around <laughs> oh, really? what that actually looks okay. like. For some, for some people, it's mediation. So it's really very tradition, the traditional process of bringing various parties to a table and helping to negotiate some sort of solution. Um, that also includes high-level negotiation between nations or between um, warring parties or political parties at the national level um, or international level. At the grassroots level, that's, it takes a lot of different forms. It's often people who come alongside of communities that are experiencing conflict or maybe who've just emerged from it, and they often help people have dialogues with each other. Um, sometimes it's around kind of storytelling and helping people to share their lived experience. Um, in Africa, it often takes the form of active engagement around elections. So we've just seen the elections in Kenya. There's a whole network of women um, who set up situation rooms and who really support in very practical ways community dialogue around elections all over Africa. So there's a, amazingly diverse things that kind of fall under the heading of peace building um, and humanitarian aid is similar. Um, lots of different approaches to humanitarian aid. So in those two categories, those very broad categories of peace building and humanitarian aid, we see a lot of good people doing very needed work and often carrying brunt of that personally, sometimes without even noticing it. Well, in terms of being a peace builder, and you say that some people feel 68% said their lives were threatened. What are the mm -hmm. reasons why people want <laughs> threaten their lives if they're trying to bring peace to a region? That sounds like that would be a good thing for everybody to live in peace, but obviously not. Can you share a little bit about your insights about that? Yeah, well, often in conflict situations, people have significant vested interests. So, um, you know, different government parties, different sort of warring militias or paramilitary organizations. Um, so, you know, it's often about power and control and resources. And so people don't necessarily always want to have a, a resolution um, at that level. You also have a, you know, a huge amount of hurt amongst local populations. So sometimes for local people, even though conflict's not good for anyone and people are often scared by it and harmed by it, it's a hard and bitter pill to swallow if you've lost a family member and suddenly you see the person who was responsible for their death walk from prison free um, as part of a, a you know a prisoner release negotiation as part of a, a, a peace treaty, for example. And so it's it's a hard dynamic sometimes moving into these spaces where people have been traumatized by conflict or who have um, you know vested interests to keep conflict going. I should say that. For the local population, you know, for, for populations who've been affected by conflict, people aren't, of course, threatening peace builders, but sometimes peace builders get a lot of pushback. Um, I've seen it happen a lot where peace builders are sort of um, struggling along while people around them are saying, I'm not entirely sure I agree with what you're doing. So there's some pretty courageous people out there trying to make life better for their communities and make significant change, but often against quite, a, quite significant odds. Well, I know that the last time I was in Belfast, I know that you live there, so this may be a delicate question, but one of the things that was a little concerning for me was um, that there are still very segregated schools for kids, that there are Protestant schools and Catholic schools, and then I thought, gosh, isn't that kind of perpetuating some of the, the conflicts and problems that happened that really, you know, I know there are many factors that sparked, you know, the what's called the troubles or the conflict. Um, that lasted for quite a period of time. Um, what do you think about those kinds of things? What, what are your ideas about as a peace builder? Yeah. 
It's really complicated. So <laughs> in Northern Ireland, I my friends who are in um, who support integrated education through their work and integrated education being the the shared education of Catholics and Protestants um, uh, will be crossing their fingers that I get these statistics correct. But I think it's only seven <laughs> percent of young people in Northern Ireland are educated in intentionally integrated schools, where part of the the teaching is to really address the history and to really celebrate both cultures and other cultures as well, newcomer cultures to Northern Ireland. Um, but the demand for those places are extremely high. So my kids aren't in integrated schools because we're, we were too far away and didn't think we would get a space in the school that we would lose out. So they're educated locally. Um, and, you know, it's really heartbreaking because there are so many families that want that. Um, and, I, and I don't know the statistic for this, but I think it's something like 70% of people in Northern Ireland support integrated education and then only 7% have access to it. But it's a little bit like, I think, um, gun regulation in the States. The statistics, if I'm remembering correctly, are pretty overwhelmingly like 70%, in favor of, yeah, it's like yeah, the 70s, exactly. yeah. Exactly. About the same, yeah. about the yeah. same percentage of people saying we've got to do something about gun violence. And yet we can't seem to do it. You know, the interests are so strong um, in maintaining the status quo that we just seem paralyzed. And I think that that's one of the hard things about some of these dynamics around conflict is often we all know what needs to change, but it's really hard to get there. And that's why I have so much um, appreciation for my colleagues that maintain that hope, maintain that optimism, hold that hope for other people. Um, and keep plugging on when things often seem really um, difficult or intractable. Well, so uh, this next question is like, well, so if you have your child going to a particular kind of school, how is you as a peace builder and knowing, you know, having had conversations with you and just your incredible heart, how do you help your children understand a broader perspective than perhaps that is presented in the school that they go to? It's an interesting question. So the schools that they went to, thankfully, are practically integrated, even though they don't kind of formally discuss, um, you know, the, the cultural differences between Catholics and Protestants. Um, but we've worked really hard, my husband and I, we're both Protestants, um, and we've worked very hard to try to expose the kid to other kids to other cultures. So we gave them Irish names, for example, which is a small step, but really wanting to kind of um, in Northern Ireland, as you know, Elaine, people can often tell whether you're a Catholic Protestant by your name, and we wanted to confuse the issue right from the start, and we would um, take them to Mass as well as church, and we would take them to kind of Catholic um, cultural celebrations and important events as well as sometimes Protestant ones, and so it's really interesting, and I'm not going to say on this <laughs> podcast, because I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble, but it's hilarious the things that the kids come out with. I mean, their ideas about politics, about the future of Northern Ireland are radically different than um, their background and than probably their grandparents or even their parents in some cases. And I love that. I think we're doing our job well when they can't fit into a box. And I think certainly from my perspective, I couldn't fit into the box, you know, hearing the stories of ex-prisoners and their families, hearing the stories of prison officers and their families, hearing this kind of broad tapestry of stories about Northern Ireland. I couldn't, I can't, I couldn't squeeze myself into a box if I tried. Um, and I think that's one of the powerful things about peace building, about sharing our lived experience as humans, um, is we can begin to sometimes transcend the binary conversations that people see from the outside, looking into a conflict, and then we can really highlight that conflict is never as simple as it looks from the outside and that there's a whole wealth of stories and of humanity that people can really connect over when we make those spaces safe enough for them to do that. 
I love what you said, the stories of, of humanity, because I think, of course, that's what I've seen in the travels that I've been to many regions of the world, is that when we can talk about our common humanity, that oftentimes that start, you mean you, th- you think that? You mean you feel that? You sense that? Oh my goodness, isn't that something? Or even when I might say that I've been to so many different places on the wor- around the world, and when I ask people about what helps them get through difficult times, they often say their faith. So, you know, Christians will talk about Jesus. Um Buddhists will talk about the teachings of Buddha. Hindus will talk about a particular Hindu God. And yet when they start talking about it, the same thing happens. They often become lighter. They report sensing a lightness inside and they take a deep breath. Um, I just love that that common factor that when we talk about the things that we deeply believe, believe that it has a corresponding experience in the body. And I guess that's one of the reasons why we like talking about the the, the community resiliency model, because it seems to touch into those places. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you a little bit more about women peace builders. And, you know, um, you mentioned, you've already mentioned some of that, but there are, I imagine some particular cha- challenges as much as I'd like to think we're making a, some of an <laughs> on patriarchy we see in the United States every day that we certainly aren't. And I uh, imagine you see that in other parts of the world as well. So you would want to talk a little bit about, about the psychosocial support needs of women peace builders? Sure. Well, it's interesting and important to say maybe when we talk a little bit about the patriarchy or the differences in gender that can play out in so many parts of society, that when we think about peace building, we know that only 4% of top level negotiators at the international level are women. So only four percent, only four percent. And yet all this research has shown that if women are integrated into peace building at all levels, particularly at the negotiating table, when they can represent the interests of society, peace uh, negotiations, peace treaties last longer. They're much more effective. They're implemented more broadly throughout society. And so it's really important, I think, to support women to these spaces Um, and, of course, not to elbow men out of the way, but you know, to have that parity, that gender parity in those conversations and in that representation. And so I think um, one of the things that the Women, Peace and Security Agenda tries to do is really bring women into um, those spaces at every level. So often we talk about kind of grassroots or community peace building or mediation, national peace building or mediation and international peace building or mediation. And what this Women, Peace and Security Agenda tries to do is really just get women involved at whatever level is is where they want to be. Um, and interestingly, this stemmed from Hillary Clinton's speech way back in the late 90s, early 200s in Beijing that that women's rights are human rights, human rights are women's rights. And that really spurred on this um, uh, UN Security Council resolution 1325 that now has created this whole kind of what's called the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, this whole movement around getting women into these spaces. And often what we try to do is um, reduce barriers to women's participation. And for me, one of the barriers we don't talk enough about is this psychosocial impact. So when women are struggling to look after their children, um, uh, to uh, sort of uh, push through, even though they're being threatened, to move into very violent spaces, to be working with um, soldiers or paramilitary organizations, um, and to still kind of retain that sense of well-being. I think that if, if we can give women more tools to do that, more tools to feel better, to feel stronger, to feel supported, then they're much more likely to stay in these roles and to really thrive in these roles even more than they already are. And so this is where I'm really excited about bringing some of the community resiliency model model tools, as well as other types of training 
um, to some of the women uh, peace builders that I uh, work with. And so we've done it at women uh, mediators across the Commonwealth. We've shared the community resiliency model skills with women there and trained women there. And now they're going back and training some of their women or they're bringing me and others in to talk with them. So we've done some work in Kashmir. We've done some work in Zimbabwe with Zimbabwean women peace builders. Um, and it's really exciting to see how it spreads, how a little bit of information and a little bit in the way of resiliency tools can really help women feel stronger in themselves and more sustained in their practice. Well, I guess I want to just say a little bit about that too, uh, in the terms of what we call a term called scalability. That if we have a good idea, if we have something that's really helping people to um, create a greater sense of well-being inside of themselves, that spills over to our children, to our families, to our community. And what we do with the community resiliency model skills. So here we know that Sarah is a CRIM teacher, a community resiliency model teacher. But when she t goes to and trains people in Zimbabwe, they we call them community resiliency model guides. And many people love the skills. They start using them on this, themselves right away. And then they go start sharing them with others. And so that's where one person can then impact many. And Sarah, I'm just wondering how many people you've impacted so so far. Because I mean, I'm going to ask you one day to give me your statistics, because I think you've taught a lot of people the skills now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say I, I've never counted Elaine, but I would say that it's well over a thousand. And again, from over 30 countries, just and I teach and train in other methodologies or things that I've kind of developed myself. But I by far, I mean, I can't stop bringing the community resiliency model into what I do. And so it's by far what I teach and share the most. And so it's really been exciting. And often I hear from people who've been using it without me realizing it. Cause of course, as you say, you kind of plant those seeds and then you hope that they grow into something. And I was at a conference the other day for social prescribers. I don't know if we're using this in the States, but no, what is it's a social, it, what is that? <laughs> yes, it's great. Instead, instead of medicine, a social prescriber will work with somebody from the community who might be struggling, particularly with mental health or maybe physical health. And they'll prescribe things like walking groups, community choirs, they'll connect oh. them to local gardens. Um, so it's quite a, a beautiful model. And I was at a conference and one of the, the people that I had taught about a year and a half ago during COVID was in a panel and she said, Sarah Cook here, stand up. And it was, it was slightly mortifying, but she said, <laughs> the tool that I have used the most in my whole experience of social prescribing is a community resiliency model. She said, I share it with people almost every day and I see massive changes in, um, in how they're able to cope with the stresses that they're experiencing because of COVID and other things. So Elaine, you are my teacher and um, <laughs> oh, now I get to you. share some things uh, with others and it's wonderful to see how all of this um, plays out. Well, I well, I have to say, Sarah, Sarah, I think you're the first guest I've ever had that before we started the show, she said, is it okay if I talk about the community resiliency model? Because I really want to talk about it. I go, well, of course you could talk about it. So thank you so much for mm -hmm. you know sharing stories like that. But I mean, I guess it may be is there anything else you want to say about it? Since you asked me, are there other factors that you think is imp are important for our listeners to know about it? Why it, you know, made such an impact on you? You've shared some of it already, um, mm. but you certainly are getting a lot of good feedback from the participants in your trainings. It sounds that's really happening too. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are, are probably suppose, a couple of answers to that. I think one of the reasons why it's been so helpful to me and my family personally is the reason why it's helpful in a culture like Northern Ireland and in many other cultures where people don't necessarily have a shared language around well-being or around stress. So for people, if they're feeling really out of control, they know they're not in a great place, but they can't really describe it. 
um, a lot of the concepts like the resilient zone, the high zone, the low zone of the community resiliency model give people that shared language. So during lockdown, our kids would say to my husband and I, you're in your high zone. And it's really putting me in my or us in our high zone. Could you please do something to get yourself back in your resilient zone? And there's something really beautiful about having that shared language. So I think for a lot of people, just even being able to articulate, maybe for the first time in their life, this is what's happening inside of me. And I have a, a way to understand that now. I have something visual and mental that helps me kind of make sense of, of those kind of storms within myself at times, emotionally or physically. I also think it's so transferable because it's about the body and the way we experience stress in the body, but also the way we experience resiliency in the body. So we've used this with parents in Northern Ireland living on interface areas where there's a history of violence between Catholic and Protestant communities where they maybe rub up against each other. We've used it with educators. We've used it with community leaders. We've used it with um, people who are still in paramilitary groups who are currently in paramilitary groups. Um, we've worked with early years workers, healthcare workers, foster parents. And I think that's a really, I suppose, a beautiful thing about it is there's something there for everyone, for both practitioners and maybe for service recipients or, you know, however you want to articulate that. Um, and so that's it's just been a joy to see that it's, it's a great leveler. It gives people tools and skills um, that are the same across humanity because we experience some of these things in our bodies in the exact same way. Well, and I love that you've brought it to so many different people in Northern Ireland and also really the world, Sarah. I mean, thank you so much for the work that you're doing on behalf of myself as one human being on the planet that knows that we need more people who are peace builders and who are working with peace builders to find their own way of quelling their nervous system so they can continue to do the most very important work that they're passionate about. So we only have a few minutes left. It's gone by so fast. Is there, are there any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners to just remind them of something that you believe is so important in the work that you do? Well, I would say in a funny kind of way, hope is really important. And I think we um, need that maybe now in so many parts of the world, the U.S. included, more than we ever have before. And I think the hope of the nervous system, as you often say, Elaine, is that even when we can't control things, around us, we can often have that greater sense of control or balance in our bodies when we know how to support our nervous system and work with it. And I think that that does give that greater amount of compassion for a lot of us to ourselves, to others. It gives us more space to listen. It gives us uh, more space to connect. And so I think I would say to people who are feeling discouraged, you know, wherever you are in the world right now, with politics or cultural divides or um, conflict of all kinds, both violent conflict, political conflict, cultural conflict, that, you know, that there is this hope that we have in being able to support ourselves and then reach out and support other people um, more effectively. And certainly the community resiliency model has brought that to me and my family and to so many people I've worked with. So thank you, Elaine, for that, oh, for that well, thank gift. You, thank you, Sarah. And so can you tell us again your website? People want to get a hold <laughs> sure. of you. Yes. So it's cook-consultancy.com. And Sarah, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for staying up late because it's almost 10 o'clock. I know in Belfast, so she's got two little kids that she has to attend to as well. So thank you for staying up late. It's early for me, yeah. but I know later for you. And also, I just want to also say for all of our listeners to remember what else is true. Here, mm -hmm. we're talking about sometimes the hardest things, the conflicts that happen in the world. And yet, you know, here we have Sarah out there sprinkling hope. And sometimes that hope just comes from that very simple question. What gives you strength? 
what uplifts you, what keeps you calm. And even with the storms that you may be facing in your life, remember that there may be something else that can be true as well. So with saying that, um, until we meet again next week, this is Elaine miller Karras signing off from Resiliency Within. And again, Sarah, thank you so much. And I can't wait to get back to Belfast very soon. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.